Volume One, Chapter Nine of Marius the Epicurean. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marius the Epicurean by Walter Pater. Volume One, Chapter Nine. New Cyrenaicism. Such were the practical conclusions drawn for himself by Marius when, somewhat later, he had outgrown the mastery of others, from the principle that all is vanity. If he could but count upon the present, if a life, brief at best, could not certainly be shown to conduct one anywhere beyond itself, if men's highest curiosity was indeed so persistently baffled, then, with the Cyrenaics of all ages, he would at least fill up the measure of that present with vivid sensations, and such intellectual apprehensions as, in strength and directness, and their immediately realised values at the bar of an actual experience, are most like sensations. So some have spoken in every age, for, like all theories which really express a strong natural tendency of the human mind, or even one of its characteristic modes of weakness, this vein of reflection is a constant tradition in philosophy. Every age of European thought has had its Cyrenaics, or Epicureans, under many disguises, even under the hood of the monk. But, let us eat and drink, for to-morrow we die, is a proposal, the real import of which differs immensely according to the natural taste and the acquired judgment of the guests who sit at the table. It may express nothing better than the instinct of Dante's Chacco, the accomplished glutton, in the mud of the Inferno. Or, since on no hypothesis does man live by bread alone, may come to be identical with my meat is to do what is just and kind, while the soul, which can make no sincere claim to have apprehended anything beyond the veil of immediate experience, yet never loses a sense of happiness in conforming to the highest moral ideal it can clearly define for itself, and actually, though but with so faint hope, does the father's business." In that age of Marcus Aurelius, so completely disabused of the metaphysical ambition to pass beyond the flaming ramparts of the world, but, on the other hand, possessed of so vast an accumulation of intellectual treasure, with so wide a view before it over all varieties of what is powerful or attractive in man and his works, the thoughts of Marius did but follow the line taken by the majority of educated persons, though to a different issue. Pitched to a really high and serious key, the precept, be perfect in regard to what is here and now, the precept of culture, as it is called, or of a complete education, might at least save him from the vulgarity and heaviness of a generation certainly of no general fineness of temper, though with a material well-being abundant enough. Conceded that what is secure in our existence is but the sharp apex of the present moment between two hypothetical eternities, and all that is real in our experience but a series of fleeting impressions, so Marius continued the sceptical argument he had condensed as the matter to hold by from his various philosophical reading, given, 
that we are never to get beyond the walls of this closely shut cell of one's personality, that the ideas we are somehow impelled to form of an outer world, and of other minds akin to our own, are, it may be, but a daydream, and the thought of any world beyond, a daydream perhaps idler still, then he, at least, in whom those fleeting impressions, faces, voices, material sunshine, were very real and imperious, might well set himself to the consideration how such actual moments as they passed might be made to yield their utmost by the most dexterous training of capacity. Amid abstract metaphysical doubts, as to what might lie one step only beyond that experience, reinforcing the deep original materialism or earthliness of human nature itself, bound so intimately to the sensuous world, let him at least make the most of what was here and now. In the actual dimness of ways from means to ends, ends in themselves desirable, yet for the most part distant, and for him certainly below the visible horizon, he would at all events be sure that the means, to use the well-worn terminology, should have something of finality or perfection about them, and themselves partake, in a measure, of the more excellent nature of ends, that the means should justify the end. With this in view he would demand culture, paideia, as the Cyrenaics said, or, in other words, a wide, a complete education an education partly negative as ascertaining the true limits of man's capacities, but for the most part positive, and directed especially to the expansion and refinement of the power of reception, of those powers above all which are immediately relative to fleeting phenomena, the powers of emotion and sense. In such an education, an aesthetic education, as it might now be termed, and certainly occupied very largely with those aspects of things which affect us pleasurably through sensation, art, of course, including all the finer sorts of literature, would have a great part to play. The study of music, in that wider platonic sense, according to which music comprehends all those matters over which the muses of Greek mythology preside, would conduct one to an exquisite appreciation of all the finer traits of nature and of man. Nay, the products of the imagination must themselves be held to present the most perfect forms of life, spirit and matter alike under their purest and most perfect conditions, the most strictly appropriate objects of that impassioned contemplation which, in the world of intellectual discipline, as in the highest forms of morality and religion, must be held to be the essential function of the perfect. Such manner of life might come even to seem a kind of religion, an inward, visionary, mystic piety or religion, by virtue of its efforts to live days lovely and pleasant in themselves, here and now, and with an all-sufficiency of well-being in the immediate sense of the object contemplated, independently of any faith or hope that might be entertained as to their ulterior tendency. In this way the true aesthetic culture would be realisable as a new form of the contemplative life, founding its claim on the intrinsic blessedness of vision, the vision of perfect men and things. 
One's human nature, indeed, would fain reckon on an assured and endless future, pleasing itself with the dream of a final home, to be attained at some still remote date, yet with a conscious delightful home-coming at last, as depicted in many an old poetic Elysium. On the other hand, the world of perfect sensation, intelligence, emotion, is so close to us and so attractive, that the most visionary of spirits must needs represent the world unseen in colours and under a form really borrowed from it. Let me be sure, then, might he not plausibly say, that I miss no detail of this life of realised consciousness in the present. Here at least is a vision, a theory, theoria, which reposes on no basis of unverified hypothesis, which makes no call upon a future, after all, somewhat problematic as it would be unaffected by any discovery of an Empedocles, improving on the old story of Prometheus, as to what had really been the origin and course of development of man's actually attained faculties, and that seemingly divine particle of reason or spirit in him. Such a doctrine, at more leisurable moments, would of course have its precepts to deliver on the embellishment generally of what is near at hand, on the adornment of life, till, in a not impracticable rule of conduct, one's existence from day to day came to be like a well-executed piece of music, that perpetual motion in things, so Marius figured the matter to himself under the old Greek imageries, according itself to a kind of cadence or harmony. It was intelligible that this aesthetic philosophy might find itself, theoretically at least, and by way of a curious question in casuistry, legitimate from its own point of view, weighing the claims of that eager, concentrated, impassioned realisation of experience against those of the received morality conceiving its own function in a somewhat desperate temper, and becoming, as every high-strung form of sentiment, as the religious sentiment itself may become, somewhat antinomian, when, in its effort towards the order of experiences it prefers, it is confronted with the traditional and popular morality, at points where that morality may look very like a convention, or a mere stage property of the world, it would be found from time to time breaking beyond the limits of the actual moral order, perhaps not without some pleasurable excitement in so bold a venture. With the possibility of some such hazard as this, in thought or even in practice, that it might be, though refining or tonic even, in the case of those strong and in health, yet, as Pascal says, of the kindly and temperate wisdom of Montaigne, pernicious for those who have any natural tendency to impiety or vice, the line of reflection traced out above was fairly chargeable. Not, however, with hedonism and its supposed consequences. The blood, the heart of Marius, were still pure. He knew that his carefully considered theory of practice braced him with the effect of a moral principle duly recurring to mind every morning, towards the work of a student, for which he might seem intended. Yet there were some among his acquaintance who jumped to the conclusion that, with the Epicurean sty, he was making pleasure, pleasure as they so poorly conceived it, the sole motive of life, and they precluded any exacter estimate of the situation by covering it with a high-sounding general term, 
through the vagueness of which they were enabled to see the severe and laborious youth in the vulgar company of Lais. Words like hedonism, terms of large and vague comprehension, above all when used for a purpose avowedly controversial, have ever been the worst examples of what are called question-begging terms, and in that late age in which Marius lived, amid the dust of so many centuries of philosophical debate, the air was full of them. Yet those who used that reproachful Greek term for the philosophy of pleasure were hardly more likely than the old Greeks themselves, on whom, regarding this very subject of the theory of pleasure, their masters in the art of thinking had so emphatically to impress the necessity of making distinctions, to come to any very delicately correct ethical conclusions by a reasoning which began with a general term, comprehensive enough to cover pleasures so different in quality, in their causes and effects, as the pleasures of wine and love, of art and science, of religious enthusiasm and political enterprise, and of that taste or curiosity which satisfied itself with long days of serious study. Yet, in truth, each of those pleasurable modes of activity may, in its turn, fairly become the ideal of the hedonistic doctrine. Really, to the phase of reflection through which Marius was then passing, the charge of hedonism, whatever its true weight might be, was not properly applicable at all. Not pleasure, but fullness of life, and insight as conducing to that fullness, energy, variety, and choice of experience, including noble pain and sorrow even, loves such as those in the exquisite old story of Apuleius, sincere and strenuous forms of the moral life, such as Seneca and Epictetus, whatever form of human life, in short, might be heroic, impassioned, ideal, from these the new Cyrenaicism of Marius took its criterion of values. It was a theory, indeed, which might properly be regarded as in great degree coincident with the main principle of the Stoics themselves, and an older version of the precept, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might, a doctrine so widely acceptable among the nobler spirits of that time and, as with that, its mistaken tendency would lie in the direction of a kind of idolatry of mere life, or natural gift, or strength, l'idolatrie des talents. To understand the various forms of ancient art and thought, the various forms of actual human feeling, the only new thing in a world almost too opulent in what was old, to satisfy, with a kind of scrupulous equity, the claims of these concrete and actual objects on his sympathy, his intelligence, his senses, to pluck out the heart of their mystery, and in turn become the interpreter of them to others, this had now defined itself for Marius, as a very narrowly practical design. It determined his choice of a vocation to live by. It was the era of the rhetoricians, or sophists, as they were sometimes called, of men who came in some instances to great fame and fortune by way of a literary cultivation of science. That science, it has often been said, must have been wholly an affair of words. But in a world confessedly so opulent in what was old, the work, even of genius, must necessarily consist very much in criticism, 
and in the case of the more excellent specimens of his class, the rhetorician was, after all, the eloquent and effective interpreter, for the delighted ears of others, of what understanding himself had come by, in years of travel and study, of the beautiful house of art and thought which was the inheritance of the age. The Emperor Marcus Aurelius, to whose service Marius had now been called, was himself, more or less openly, a lecturer. That late world, amid many curiously vivid modern traits, had this spectacle, so familiar to ourselves, of the public lecturer or essayist, in some cases adding to his other gifts that of the Christian preacher, who knows how to touch people's sensibilities on behalf of the suffering. To follow in the way of these successes was the natural instinct of youthful ambition, and it was with no vulgar egotism that Marius, at the age of nineteen, determined, like many another young man of parts, to enter as a student of rhetoric at Rome. Though the manner of his work was changed formally from poetry to prose, he remained, and must always be, of the poetic temper, by which I mean, among other things, that quite independently of the general habit of that pensive age, he lived much, and as it were by system, in reminiscence. Amid his eager grasping at the sensation, the consciousness of the present, he had come to see that, after all, the main point of economy in the conduct of the present was the question, How will it look to me, at what shall I value it, this day next year? that in any given day or month one's main concern was its impression for the memory. A strange trick memory sometimes played him, for, with no natural gradation, what was of last month, or of yesterday, of to-day even, would seem as far off, as entirely detached from him, as things of ten years ago. Detached from him, yet very real, there lay certain spaces of his life in delicate perspective, under a favourable light, and, somehow, all the less fortunate detail and circumstance had parted from them. Such hours were oftenest those in which he had been helped by work of others to the pleasurable apprehension of art, of nature, or of life. Not what I do, but what I am, under the power of this vision, he would say to himself, is what were indeed pleasing to the gods and yet with a kind of inconsistency in one who had taken for his philosophic ideal the monochronos hedone of Aristippus, the pleasure of the ideal present, of the mystic now, there would come, together with that precipitate sinking of things into the past, a desire, after all, to retain what was so transitive. Could he but arrest, for others also, certain clauses of experience, as the imaginative memory presented them to himself? In those grand hot summers he would have imprisoned the very perfume of the flowers. To create, to live perhaps, a little while beyond the allotted hours, if it were but in a fragment of perfect expression, it was thus his longing defined itself for something to hold by amid the perpetual flux. With men of his vocation, people were apt to say, words were things. Well, with him, words should be indeed things. The word, the phrase, valuable in exact proportion to the transparency with which it conveyed to others the apprehension, the emotion, the mood, 
so vividly real within himself. Verbaque provisam rem non in vita sequentur. Virile apprehension of the true nature of things, of the true nature of one's own impression, first of all. Words would follow that naturally, a true understanding of oneself being ever the first condition of genuine style. Language, delicate and measured, the delicate Attic phrase, for instance, in which the eminent Aristides could speak, was then a power to which people's hearts, and sometimes even their purses, readily responded. And there were many points, as Marius thought, on which the heart of that age greatly needed to be touched. He hardly knew how strong that old religious sense of responsibility, the conscience as we call it, still was within him, a body of inward impressions as real as those so highly valued outward ones, to offend against which brought with it a strange feeling of disloyalty as to a person, and the determination, adhered to with no misgiving, to add nothing, not so much as a transient sigh, to the great total of men's unhappiness in his way through the world, that too was something to rest on in the drift of mere appearances. All this would involve a life of industry, of industrious study, only possible through healthy rule, keeping clear the eye alike of body and soul. For the male element, the logical conscience asserted itself now with opening manhood, asserted itself even in his literary style, by a certain firmness of outline, that touch of the worker in metal, amid its richness. Already he blamed instinctively alike in his work and in himself, as youth so seldom does, all that had not passed a long and liberal process of erasure. The happy phrase or sentence was really modelled upon a cleanly finished structure of scrupulous thought. The suggestive force of the one master of his development, who had battled so hard with imaginative prose, the utterance, the golden utterance of the other, so content with its living power of persuasion that he had never written at all, in the commixture of these two qualities he set up his literary ideal, and this rare blending of grace with an intellectual rigour or astringency was the secret of a singular expressiveness in it. He acquired at this time a certain bookish air, the somewhat sombre habitude of the avowed scholar, which, though it never interfered with the perfect tone, fresh and serenely disposed, of the Roman gentleman, yet qualified it as by an interesting oblique trait and frightened away some of his equals in age and rank. The sober discretion of his thoughts, his sustained habit of meditation, the sense of those negative conclusions enabling him to concentrate himself with an absorption so entire upon what is immediately here and now, gave him a peculiar manner of intellectual confidence, as of one who had indeed been initiated into a great secret. Though, with an air so disengaged, he seemed to be living so intently in the visible world. And now, in revolt against that preoccupation with other persons, which had so often perturbed his spirit, his wistful speculations as to what the real, the greater experience might be, determined in him, not as the longing for love, to be with Cynthia or Aspasia, but as a thirst for existence in exquisite places.
The veil that was to be lifted for him lay over the works of the old masters of art, in places where nature also had used her mastery. And it was just at this moment that a summons to Rome reached him. End of chapter 9